Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Paul and Amy bought the house on Podcast Avenue in the spring of the 2018th year. Over the next 26 months, they watched a list of films deemed the best in the world and then resolved to construct a better one. They have been auditioning candidates for their brilliance, brilliance they hope will not be erased by decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster, including this one, The Royal Tenenbaums. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we're endeavoring to find the best hundred films of all time. And when we do, we're going to blast them into space. But Amy and I do not take this lightly. No, no, no. The only way to do this appropriately is to break down films by genre, then get even smaller and more granular and try to find the best version of the best movies of all time. And right now, we're in the middle of fucked up families. Uh, and I'm ex- so excited about today's episode on Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> I have been loving this fucked up family series. Loving it. 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 I, th- I mean, so far, it might be my favorite, which I feel guilty even saying. No, I think what's been really exciting about this series, not to pat ourselves on the back, and obviously, thank you for everybody listening to it, uh, but we really are getting to expand our worldview a little bit. And I think what I've realized in retrospect was that the AFI list at points just felt like a burden. Like they all felt of the same ilk and oftentimes even at the same time period. So you were kind of living in a in an area that just didn't have a lot of variety. And I think like... Listen, man, the early 70s will never die. <laughs> but I mean, but truthfully, going from Ease Bayou, and I've been thinking about that movie a lot in our conversation about that, to this film, they can't be more polar opposite. And they're incredibly engaging. But it makes me... I mean, look, this is your job. You get to do this all the time. Uh, but this is uh, it's fun for me. 
And also what I love about this series is we are getting to, you know, pick and choose from some of the great, great capital letter name talents of our generation who have gone unrecognized on the AFI list and figure out our entryway into having these conversations about first the Coens when we did Raising Arizona and now Wes Anderson. We're finally getting into Wes Anderson, which if we were having this conversation seven years ago, it might be really different from me. And I'm very excited to have it now today. That's such a good point. I think... Not having watched a Wes Anderson film in a while, it made me really want to go back to some of this earlier stuff, the stuff that I truly fell in love with when I first saw him. Because seeing this again um, just brought back so many memories. And it was so odd because after I was done watching it, I was like, I want to watch more Wes Anderson. Then I was like, you know what? I actually want to watch Ocean's Eleven. And I don't know why <laughs> I put it on right after. And they were, they were kind of a great companion piece. And I was thinking about like just Wes Anderson and Soderbergh in this era, both making very different things, but they both have a very similar thematic nature to it. And as I was doing my research, I found out that a majority of Royal Tenenbaum's actors turned down roles in Ocean's Eleven. And I was like, oh, Whoa. I think I have some sort of connection here. Um, yeah, Danny Glover, Luke Wilson, and Owen Wilson all turned down parts in Ocean's Eleven to be in this one. So I thought that was really interesting. And, and I think maybe the idea of like a big plan, but I just loved these filmmakers getting to make these big movies, but keep a lot of their independent sense to them. Like, I think that that's probably the big Soderbergh. And this movie seems gigantic. I mean, 300 locations or 300 sets in this film. It kind of is mind-blowing. Anyway... Fun to get into in this era, which I think really made me fall in love with like independent film or maybe independent film makers getting a chance to do something in a larger mm-hmm. arena, kind of like what we saw with the Coens. Very much. I mean, so are, are we ready? Are we ready to really get into this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, narrator? Let's unspool it. The year is 2001. Timothy McVeigh is executed for the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. Enron files for Chapter 11. Apple releases iTunes and the iPod. Wikipedia launches. And Napster is ordered to close down. Is also, of course, the year that hijackers take control of four domestic commercial airlines and crash them into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. It's also the year that the U.S. invades Afghanistan and the war on terrorism begins. Popular films are Monsters, Inc., Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Ocean's Eleven, The Fellowship of the Ring, Moulin Rouge, and today's film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Let's take a listen to a clip. Are you getting divorced? At the moment, no. But uh, it doesn't look good. Do you still love us? Of course I do. Do you still love Mom? Yes, very much. But your mother's asked me to leave, and I must respect her position on the matter. Was it our fault? No. Oh, obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Then why'd she ask you to leave? I don't really know anymore. Maybe uh, I wasn't as true to her as I could have been. Well, she said... Let's just drop it, shall we? Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And that's a hard question, I know. (laughs) I'll do this then as simple as possible. Royal Tenenbaums. It is the third film by Wes Anderson, who was on a huge roll. He had made Bottle Rocket, he made Rushmore, and now he made this. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums is the story of a man named Royal Tenenbaum, who's played by Gene Hackman. And Royal is trying to work his way back into the center of the Tenenbaum family, who, when the movie starts, really have no center at all. 
The three Tenenbaum kids were all childhood prodigies. Their names are Chaz, Margot, and Richie. They're played here by Ben Stiller, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Luke Wilson. And when the movie starts, they're just all scattered and screwed up and focused on themselves, their own miseries, their own disappointments. And it means this is a movie that's about remorse and forgiveness. And when you take that and rewind it back to December 11th, 2001, when the Royal Tenenbaums was released, I think it pairs quite well with the top song on the Billboard charts. It's by another childhood prodigy, Usher, and this is his ballad of misplaced priorities and regret. You got it bad. When you say that you love them, and you really know everything that used to matter, don't matter no more. Like my money, all my cars, you can have it all. Flowers, cards, and candy, do it just cause I'm I'm fortunate to have you, girl. I want you to know I really adore you. Never heard that song in my life. What? Never you were heard that not song. at all getting laid in 2001. I was, but not to that song, to the Exile soundtrack. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Wow. I've never heard that song. And by the way, <laughs> Usher was my wedding song. So I, I am familiar with Usher. It's not like I am uh, not hip to Usher. But anyway. But no, that, that makes sense, Paul. You've never done anything wrong in your whole life. So why would you know about that song? <laughs> no, but it's rare that like in 2001 that I would not have heard a song. I, I'm more surprised at myself. What what other holes do I have, Amy? What other holes? I don't know. I'm you pretty really... sure in December 2001, you might have had other things on your mind. <laughs> yeah, I was living in New York at the time. It was a weird time. Yeah. Uh <laughs> But this is exciting for you. It means that, you know, in a month when you've already gotten to explore Eve's Bayou, you've already gotten to explore Tokyo Story, you can now explore some like real bangers from Usher. I'm happy for you that you're about to have this experience. I'm getting on that Usher train. And by the way, you showed a video there as we were listening to it. And I recognize where he shot the video. So that, uh, like, I at least feel a connection. I feel like I have an entry point now. That what, Were I was you in one of same, Usher's video girls? I was in the same parking lot. My trailer for the league was in that same parking lot that he was in right there. <laughs> so I, I'm very familiar with it. We've we've shared the same space. And yes, I've also fucked Usher. Um, <laughs> Amy, I need to put a disclaimer on this movie. Um it's the same way I feel about Days and Confused, but I didn't realize my connection to this film until I recently rewatched it for the show, which is I love this movie. I love this movie. I've read the script of this movie. I own the criterion of this film, but I've probably went about a decade without having watched it. And I think that I forgot just how much I loved it and just how good of a film it is and how amazing Wes Anderson is because there's a part of this and I want to hear your whole take on this Mm -hmm. where I feel like this is Wes Anderson at his like perfect point. Like everything is kind of clicking. Like sometimes it's like, okay, I really like what's going on here thematically, or I really like the art design here, or I really like the characters, but this one, it's really finely tuned and really well done. I mean, how about you? What's your connection to this film? You know, I come at it from an opposite direction. Like, I've always struggled to like Wes Anderson, which is weird. Like, I I like artificial things. I like heightened things. I love immaculate design and direction. I don't know what my issue has been with Wes Anderson my whole life. Like, I have um, a really good friend who since passed away, Matt Volines, and his favorite movie of all time is Bottle Rocket Mm, of all time. And in his honor, I have tried to like Bottle Rocket. I have tried so hard to honor his memory by liking Bottle Rocket, and I can't do it. And he's probably like haunting me right now and like yelling at me into my ear, which I accept. I'm going to continue to try for him. But like I've had this issue with Wes Anderson 
a lot of my life where he seems so much like something I would love. And yet I don't like I, I find him cold until I saw Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, his grand defense of why we're allowed to have beautiful, artificial, precious things in our world. Why why working for beauty is a is a badge of honor. And in that lens, I fell in love with him and that film. And so this is my first time watching Royal Tenenbaums since that. And I, and I was really excited to go back and like with this new empathy I have gained for him and this new insight that I finally have into his worldview, appreciate him more, which I think I did. You think? <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I, I mean, did. there there's so much to love in this film. And I want to look at it and I want to talk about it critically. I think that what I was just struck by really on this watch was the visual perfection of it. I mean, I think that any YouTuber will be able to tell you how, you know, he frames shots in a very symmetrical way. Like you can drive it down the middle. Everything is framed. I love, love his framing. It, it really is like a portrait. And then I started thinking more about him and saying, well, it's not even a portrait. We are staring into Wes Anderson's dioramas. And this whole movie is celebrating that. Like, I mean, when you look at Richie's bedroom, you know, it's all the drawings of his life are on the wall. And that, of course, is done by uh, Wes Anderson's brother, Eric. Um, but this whole house is a diorama and you just live in it. And he's done that a lot. Like Fantastic Mr. Fox is a great example of that. Like he loves creating literally these worlds where everything inside them are things you can't get, you can't purchase, you've never seen, you know, and in a world where I think you watch something and go, I want that in my house. You can't get this in your house. So this is completely like the art is just oozing from it. And here I feel like it doesn't overtake the film at all. I think Grand Budapest Hotel has that element too. It's, you know, again, you're looking at this hotel, but I just thought of him as a diorama maker who tells, you know, moving stories in a way like you really are just put in. I mean, he's a he's a diorama maker who makes dioramas. Like in this film, Margot has dioramas of the plays that she wants to make that we get to see the dioramas and there's things in there that he's made. Like she loves zebras. Zebras are in her diorama. Zebras are on her bedroom that he's made for her in this movie. He puts her in a room where she's also with like a stuffed zebra. Like he's he's making it and honoring it and showing this kind of I used to think of him as like a snow globe filmmaker, which I think yeah. I still kind of do in that outer life doesn't tend to disrupt what he wants to create. It, it, there is something in the exclusivity, kind of like you're mentioning of like you can't reach into his snow globe. I mean, this, the cigarettes, for example, that Margot smokes in this film are from not only Ireland, but they're like discontinued cigarettes from Ireland from the 1970s. Yes. So you just can't have them. You just can't have them. And nobody comments on that. Nobody's like, look at your cigarettes. They're from Ireland in the 1970s. It's just, she just has a thing you can't have. I think one of the things with Wes Anderson is he creates this timeless nature to all of his films. Like what year is it? I don't know, but it could be this year, right? And it makes it feel so rich and completely imagined um, to your point about the cigarettes, you know, I watch this documentary on Wes Anderson. It's, it's actually really revealing. It's on YouTube. IFC did it. And, you know, this is back in early days. So I think filmmakers were more, um, willing to let someone tag along with them a little bit. And you watch him go through the house and the house, the Brownson that they live in is incredibly plain. 
And he's speaking to all of his set designers and he's saying like, yes, this needs to be like this. This wall is too drab. Everything that he thought about the house was, you can never look at this house and think I've seen that somewhere else. And the way he was thinking about it was, I can't wait to build this world and put my actors into it because then like as they walk into the house, the movie pulls them in. And what this movie really revealed to me and and also that documentary, which I never thought about Wes Anderson, was he loves working with actors. And I don't know why I never thought that. I thought that Wes Anderson wanted actors to exist in the diorama the way that he wants them to be. And I think what I realized was, after watching this documentary, he wants to build the diorama and then have them play within it. And he likes stepping back and watching it. Like there's a joy of him watching his performers like fumble and find and build. Like he doesn't seem precious about the dialogue or about the choices. He hasn't envisioned the actors. He's just envisioned the world and the scenarios. And I was like, it gave me actually a lot more respect for him because I think like somebody like David Fincher is like, I want you to say it like this and walk over here and touch the phone like that. And he is like, have fun, have fun in my house. It's like, he's like throwing a party. I, and I don't know, as an actor that was exciting and as also as a filmmaker, like who's so specific, that's like, wow, that the amount of freedom he gives to his actors for something that he has so much control over. Yeah, or, or it's that he figures out where he wants to exert the control so that he can let go of the control. Right. Because like I, I feel like he toggles between both modes. Like, actually, here's a clip of him even trying to talk aloud to himself about, like, what matters most to him in making this film. I tried to be kind of a little bit relentless about getting all the details exactly, exactly as we planned them. So I think when people see it, they say, well, this is the script that was written and it's all in here. Um, because before, you know, I, did, I had stuff where there was some stuff planned and then some stuff they say, well, this will be just as good. But then yeah, I feel like, you know, Let's just do what was planned, because sometimes I'll even forget why I wanted to do this, wanted to do something an exact way. And later I realized, oh, I wanted to do it that way because it ties into this thing at the end of the movie or something like that. So this one, I just tried to make it just the rule to be as close to the plan as possible. Not, I mean, that, but, that, but then the actors do something, you know, it, it's always different. You know, the, you want to be surprised by what the actors do, and the way it adds up together is always different. The thing that matters is is the behavior of the actors and making those moments real, and that's what that's what really an audience connects with in the biggest way. The other stuff is something that I feel like is my personal interest in in those things, but that's not what makes a movie work, kind of. You know, I mean, all those things are important, but I, I used to be that was all I wanted to talk about was the directors of photography and the you know, art direction and all that stuff, and now I just. That doesn't seem as interesting to me, even though I know I respond to it the same way I always did. Um, it's the, it does feel like the easier thing to do in a way. Um, so I don't know. But in the case of this movie, you know, it's sort of hard to make that case because we it's so flooded with all this kind of stuff, you know, with all these different... It's got like 300 different sets you know, scenes that last for one line, we have to build the set just for that one scene, you know, and um, literally one line, you know. 
Um, uh, many of them like that. Um, and some scenes with no lines, you know, we built, so we have some sets where there are no people on the set. Um, so I don't know. I appreciate him wrestling with that out loud, you know, because I don't consider him to be the kind of director who finds it in the moment, you know, with his actors, like, let's see how much you bring to the table, like a truly kind of like the way we talked about Altman, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not in that mode. But I think it was important to him that this house that that they all live in actually be a house, you know, that it wasn't a set, that it was a complete house, because if he only had, say, like Gwyneth Paltrow for 10 days because she was really busy, um, she could walk into this Wait, house. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. I wow. Know. So if he only had her that long because she was so busy, she could walk into the house that she had grown up in, you know, her character had grown up in, walk to the floor where her bedroom was, and her bedroom was there, and that it put her in the mindset so fast to make it that real for the actors. So it's like once he constructed the whole thing around them, he could let them play. You know, and I'll just say that as an actor, I'm an actor who I think works a lot from the outside in. Like once I get in the clothes, mm-hmm. once I see the place, it once really does help. Yeah, once I get those apps. But, mm-hmm. you know, there is a real truth to that. And I think that's how in 10 days he's not only able to get that performance out of her, which I think is phenomenal, but um, it is so expansive like he's able to move like because it's all there and i think that to me now i'm getting even more respect for him <laughs> I, I but um there's so many things i want to say but continue well but, but i think to your point like he's able to let go of control maybe only because he's tailored it so much for the person he's cast before they even get there you know mm. the way that he for example like really wrote the character of royal tenenbaum for gene hackman wait i heard it was for gene wilder And then Gene Wilder turned it down. It was the opposite. It was for Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman turned it down over and over and over and over again. And he kept going back to Gene Hackman and being like, come on. Like Gene Hackman turned it down for a year. That's what it took for Gene Hackman to say yes. Gene Wilder was his backup. And I would have loved to see Gene Wilder because... The, that that whole um, Willy Wonka, welcome to my death palace, you know, to like have a death palace residential manner where he grazed his kids to torture them in the way. I, I feel like I could see him doing that well. Yeah. But to me, when I read Gene Wilder, I was like, I love Gene Wilder. Like, oh, I love him. He, I, he is perfection, but he's not a shit. And I think that there's mm-hmm. something really great about Gene Hackman in this. Like he is, he's a shit. Like he's like... And he's a fuck up and he, in many ways, his fuck up waves ripples the whole family. Like they're a family of geniuses, the pressure that they put on each other. Like it, I don't know. I don't see like Gene Wilder seems so more, it's a different movie, right? And I think that one of the reasons why Hackman didn't agree to it was because he felt like the character wasn't really fleshed out. Him and Angelica Houston, I think, were both like, well, what are these characters? And they continued to grow and grow and grow. But I will say this to this whole point about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker. That's one of the best Gene Hackman performances of all time. Like, mm-hmm. hands down. Like, this is the most Gene Hackman-y Gene Hackman. Like, it's everything that you love of Gene Hackman. It it also feels alive. There's something about, like, he captured the quintessential Gene Hackman, which is funny and dark and sweet and sour and... As we're talking about Gwyneth Paltrow, that's another amazing thing. I think that pound for pound, the performances he gets from people that we love, you're like, fuck, that's a good performance. Like, 
he's allowing these actors to be who you want them to be. Like they're not like Bill Murray isn't doing something very different. Like he's doing what you want. Gene Hackman is giving you a Gene Hackman performance. And I think for him. Yeah, exactly. To, I mean, that's what I mean by like tailored. He's like, what is Bill Murray good at? What is the core right. of a Bill Murray good at? What is the core of a Hackman good at? And like, I think I can get like, I want them to excel in what I think they can do. So basically what we're saying is, or maybe what you're saying is he is creating a bowling alley with those, uh, those things that fill up the, 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 bumpers? Gu- the bumpers, right? Like, yeah. he, so he's like, do whatever you want because you're not going to go in the gutter. I'm going to protect yeah. you from the gutter. Because I think there is something alive you know, about I've these performances. I've actually managed to get a gutter ball and a bumper things before. How? I, you know, if you do it just wrong, it'll go right wow. between the final pin and, and the last empty space of bumper. Wow. I'm wow, Amy. That is, that is, I, I, I mean, that, that, that is a, that is a, something to be prideful in. Um, <laughs> but I mean, across the board here, it's like even Danny Glover, who again, I have a very uh, big soft spot for, like just great and I don't know the performances. I lo- like. I, it reminded me how much I love Luke Wilson. I was like, "Where is that guy?" Like, I love that guy. Like, he's great in this movie. And reminded me how much I loved him in Bottle Rocket. Uh, I don't know. Um, well, you performances know, performances are strong. Though, yeah, well, totally. But like, what's weird is, you know, when I was watching this movie and like trying to pull like the clips I really loved, I realized mm-hmm. I'm pulling like pretty much eighty percent Gene Hackman clips. Which surprised me because when I think about this movie, I feel like um, Royal Tenenbaums in my imagination and kind of like my cultural memory of this film has just gotten reduced to the people in the Halloween costumes playing Margot Tenenbaum. Like, I mean, I just, red tracksuit, right? Like that's what you remember, right. like Ben Stiller, red, red tracksuit, track blonde hair, barrette. Like that is what the Royal Tenenbaums has become to me. It's become almost like a second airglobe diorama of this movie has been constructed mm-hmm. around it from the fandom. And I can't believe that I forgot the entire person who's like the center of the film. Like, but just in, it's been, you know, so long since it came out that memory is just washed away from me. I mean, there's something honestly about Margot Tannenbaum that I think just kind of takes over my entire imagination of it. I mean, her reserve, her cool, her, she's just impossibly awesome in the way she looks, even though she's so miserable. I mean, even when I hear like Gwyneth Paltrow describe the character of Margot, you just get the sense that even Gwyneth kind of wants to be Margot all the time. Um, gosh, so much of her appeal to me. I mean... You know, that whole kind of secret existence that she has, um, the secret smoking and the affairs and kind of her imagination and just the whole what somebody would go through to be to do all of that and then to get so fed by all of that secretive stuff really intrigued me, you know, because I'm completely not that way. Um, And just her whole psychology and her mannerisms and everything, I I just I was obsessed with her. She was just my favorite. Well, I forgot how the movie ended. Um, like I didn't remember, I didn't even really remember the story as much as I remember these moments and these characters. You're right. And I think that's why in rewatching it, I was like, this is better than I remember it or give it credit for. And not that I was ever like, you know, saying, ah, get it out of here. It just is, um, it is a really rich film that is incredibly memeable, right? Like it, like you can, there's, like I said earlier, 300 different sets. You can pick apart things. You can see how everybody vultured this movie and there's elements of all of this in every director's, well, every director kind of came after Wes Anderson, like kind of stealing these little things and he's stealing from, you know, French cinema. And he's like, there's a real, 
it, there's an interesting pass through here because I think this is uh, a real seminal movie of the 2000s, right? Like this defines a little bit of like this kind of quirkiness that people try to achieve. Yeah, the adamant color palette. You know how everything mm-hmm. here is like what? Butterscotch yellow and pink and red and powder blue. And yeah. yeah, maybe a little bit of green here and there just for kicks. But it doesn't it, feel precious to me, right? Like this one doesn't feel precious to me. I think I've watched other Wes Anderson films that feel too precious. I think part of that is the setting that he chose. You know, like he chose himself like a setting with the right bumpers because the preciousness fits in like a rich, you know, New York house, a giant like five story brownstone. You can be precious there. I believe that these people, all of whom have written books, every character has Mm. written books. Even the minor characters have written books just to prove that there's this baseline of like, you must be this literary to cross this threshold. I can believe it here. I don't believe it in his movies like Moonrise Kingdom. You know, it's just like, okay, these kids are that cute and that perfectionist. Like, really? Like, I think that's why I didn't buy it again until Ray Fiennes. You know, Ray Fiennes being the perfectionist hotel manager. Well, I think that there's a... I totally agree with you. And that's why I love this trilogy of Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and Tenenbaums because Bottle Rocket has none of that. Like there is, Mm -hmm. there's a style and there's dialogue choices. And of course, the actors that are familiar to the Wes Anderson universe. Uh, But it is very much bare bones. And I love that. And then Rushmore is about this kind of person who would write Royal Tenenbaums. And then Tenenbaums Mm -hmm. is the world that I think you know, Rushmore, uh, Max Fisher wants to live in, in a way, right? And then, like, but not everything can exist in this, like, copy on a copy on a copy. But those three are really interesting and they complement each other, I think, a lot. Um, You're right, the way they build off of each other. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Hello. Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. (laughs) No, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. I've been getting this kind of, oh... Nostalgia, I don't think, isn't quite the right word. Maybe it's a little bit of jealousy for films made in this period, you know, the late 90s to early 2000s. Um, Jealousy just as a critic of of critics who were, like, able to be critics back then of the the films that young filmmakers were able to make, like him. The way they're able to grow their career and get, like, a $25 million budget on their third film. And the money that felt like it was in the studio system at the time for people that they thought were good artists taking risks. Which yeah. doesn't exist, I think, to that extent. Now it's like you either make under ten million dollars film for the, for the rest of your life or a Marvel film. Like you don't really get your make no. a film with your personality, and here's several million dollars more than you need to do it. That I mean, doesn't exist, and we only had it back then, I think, because of DVD sales. To be honest, mm-hmm. and with DVD sales, this like extra cash cow source of revenue collapsed. We stopped getting 
independent filmmakers who were, had the money to make the coolest films of their career. It, it bums me the hell out, honestly. Well, so when I see this movie and I'm like, look at all the money he had, it makes me really sad. Yeah, well, I mean, there are so few people willing to take a risk and a big financial risk. And I think one of the the terrible downsides of what happened at Sony with Amy Pascal mm-hmm. is exactly indicative of this. Times are changing. Like Amy Pascal is somebody who's going to green light Michael Clayton, you know, she, and she's also going to green light, you know, Waterboy or, you know, an Adam Sandler film, but she knew how to walk these lines and make films that were interesting and weird, like the Danny Boyle, uh, Steve Jobs movie, where it's like, here, it's gonna be four scenes and, you know, and we're going to give you the budget to achieve what you want in this. And the scope is, I don't know, it, it, you're right. Like, there's something about it where you're like, oh, I feel like I'm in this world. I would never feel this way now. Like, you can't, you know, when he said 300 sets, and I know I've said this now like four times, but that is mind-blowing. From mm-hmm. a production standpoint, as anyone, as someone who has done things, that is the fact that he was able to keep that. And most of those scenes, or a majority of them, are one line without lines, 10 seconds or less. Like, there are so many, like... Just think about the summer house with the with the BB guns. Like, how long is that? A minute? Like, you know, and that's a whole different location. Or the the plane that is crashed down in the wherever the plane is crashed. Like, that's not green screen. They were there. They were doing this thing. Like, and and this movie. You're right. This idea of let's put money behind something that isn't superheroes. That isn't uh, a four quadrant film. And I think it makes these films, and hopefully makes these films last longer because something like this, they feel a little bit more timeless. Whereas I think if you went back and watched Pi right now, uh, not to say that they're the same kind of filmmakers, there's a, a sheen that wears off because we've, we've, you know, we've moved forward. We've, you know, like there's something with the down and dirty version of things that don't really sometimes live. We, we want to watch the next down and dirty thing. Like we want to watch Tangerine, but we don't want to go back and watch Pi, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And if people are interested in you know, the very, very beginning of Wes Anderson's career and how he was nurtured, there's a great episode of um, Karina Longworth's, uh, you must remember the series on Polly Platt, where she gets into how Polly found Wes Anderson oh, wow. and like develop, helped him develop um, Bottle Rocket and make that film exist. And kind of like, you know, he got he got a really soft, gentle, welcoming, appreciative welcome into Hollywood that I also don't think a lot of young filmmakers are getting today. Hmm. Um, so he was... He was a lucky guy, but I appreciate it when his talent came into full fruition in a moment like this, even though it's so funny to think about, like, I didn't realize that Royal Tenenbaums, you know, he's such a creative magpie. He named the Royal Tenenbaums after a family he knew called the Tenenbaums from when he grew up in Texas. And they even had a daughter named Margot Tenenbaum. And so Margot was like, yeah, you know, he thought our family was really cool and close knit. He was always hanging out. He always wanted to be around us. Then he writes this thing called the Royal Tenenbaums. She walks through the world now giving her name as Margot Tenenbaum. And people wow. are like, whoa, doing a double take. And it made me think of young Wes Anderson almost as the Eli figure, you know, the guy being like, I'm on the outside staring at this family. I want to possess them in some way. I want to be a writer. I want to take on this persona and capture these people and get in any way I can. Well, yeah. I mean, by the way, to talk about the real life connection, you know, Henry Sherman, the character that Danny Glover plays, was Wes Anderson's landlord. 
Oh, really? That was yeah. the guy's name? Yep. <laughs> How um, sweet is Danny Glover in this movie? I love Danny Glover in this movie. And like, I'm just a, I want more Danny Glover. I, I love whenever I see him pop up. And uh, there's a moment in this movie that made me laugh out loud. I was laughing throughout this movie, which I don't often do. I don't like laugh out loud uh, when I'm watching movies. I mean, you know, whatever. I'll laugh out loud at YouTube videos and dumb stuff like that. But this movie made me laugh out loud. And, and one of the best shot pratfalls of all time is in this movie, which is, you know, Danny Glover and Angelica Houston have this relationship and it's very odd and and he's in love with her and she's kind of in love with him and um and they have this bizarre courtship and they're walking through a archaeological dig site and as he's walking next to her and really she's saying to him, Yes, I want to be with you. Yes, I love you, essentially. He falls into a pit and it's played like the camera never stops on the dolly. It's still moving and he just Boom, it just falls right out of frame, like Kelsey Grammer in that YouTube video. And but there's what I love about it is he gets up and he's so unflustered. There's some there's such a um majesty to him, or there's such a like he holds himself with such good regard. Like when he gets up, there's you know, like hay in his hair, his suit looks, you know, he clearly is shook by what just happened, but not revealing it at all all and there's so much emotion hidden behind the stoicism that he has and but it's weird because he's not stoic it's just like i the performance is just so unique i love it love it love it love it and then you watch just a couple scenes later gene hackman try to rattle that calm you know like when gene hackman realizes that danny glover is going to win over his like wife you know they're still technically married even though he hasn't spoken her in seven years he comes into the house pretends he's sick which by the way, that whole conversation between him and Angelica Houston. I oh, mean, let's just listen to that. The emotions that she goes through. What they say. What's the prognosis? Take it easy. Hold on. Hold on, baby. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Where is the doctor? No, just wait a second now. Wait a second. Okay, uh, listen, I'm not dying. But I need some time. A month or so, okay? I want us, I want us to, to... to What's wrong with you? Damn. Ethel! Are you crazy? Ethel, baby, I am dying. The rising and fall, there's almost nothing, I think, more more evil than what he just did to her. But you watch also something, and this is what I think Wes Anderson does so good in this film, these characters have these levels, right? Here is Royal's plan. I'm going to tell her that I'm dying and it's going to work and I'm going to ingratiate myself into the family. This is my plan. He goes there, reveals the plan. Within seconds, he sees that he's upset the alpha cart too much. And then he panics. And in this moment, you see it all in their face. He's like, I'm not dying. And the cameras is in this one spot, so you can actually see these scenes played out. We've talked about this before, like where the cameras is capturing the comedy and also the the emotions. But yeah, it's Ozu. It just at a higher level. It's Ozu at waist level. Yeah, it's not uh, Tatami Ozu. Yeah, it's not it's not Tatami level. Um, but the idea that like you see him go, oh shit, I'm not, and then she comes back in, she's even more mad. He's like, oh shit, I, like the that movement of him trying to figure her out and the way that his body braces and when she comes at him and he raises his like fists like as if she's going to hit him and then she does hit him. It's like, it. there's so much 
in that relationship, in that one scene. And that is, again, I think great actors taking a scene that's very well written, but that is great acting because there's stuff that is not on the page there. That is, that is, I don't know. I, I, I love it. I love it so. I love it so. I think what really hits me about that is it's a moment where Angelica Houston really brings forward that you can absolutely despise somebody and yet love them. Mm -hmm. I don't know many scenes that show it as well as that one does. She despises him. She has every reason to despise him. She has more reasons at the end of that scene to despise him than she did even when it started. And she already despised him. And yet, you know, she will sob to know that he's going to leave. You know, you can't, you can hold both of these really powerful emotions at the same time. And I think she shows that so beautifully, but I was thinking about then, you know, a few scenes later when Danny Glover is now over at the house a lot because they're dating and he's trying to script their relationship. And there's, I think, a really calculated, cruel failure of a scene between between Royal and between uh, Henry Sherman, where you can see that Gene is trying to upset this incredibly calm, wonderful, lovely man Mm. to make him the outsider. Like, Gene is the outsider. Like, you know, Royal Tenenbaum is the outsider in his own house. And technically, like, absolutely, like, his um, wife's new husband-to-be is the new patriarch-to-be of this clan, and yet he's trying to put him out. You know, he's trying to get him upset. He's trying to make him the problem and kick him out, and he's being, honestly, pretty racist as he's doing it. Are you trying to steal my woman? I beg your pardon? You heard me, Coltrane. Coltrane? Did you just call me Coltrane? No. You didn't? No. Okay. But if I did, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, would you? You don't think so? No, I don't. Listen, Royal, if you think you can You want to talk some jive? I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on. Sit down. What? What what did you say? I said sit down. Oh, I heard you. I want you out of my house. I'm just just about to break the ass out. Don't talk semantics with me. No, that's just not you. What's going on here? That scene, again, is this beautiful dance of this character who is doing something that is incredibly despicable. But because... We have now spent so much time with him and know how much this family means to him. And I think that that's something that this movie really wrestles with. It's like he goes back to his family not to connect with them, but to get out of a jam that he's in. And then he starts to obviously connect with them. But this moment, if you view this scene alone, it's like, oh, like what a racist asshole. And here it's almost sadder because he's like, what can I do to piss him off? Like he is trying everything like it's like he's up against the ropes and he's just throwing these wild punches and it's there's something desperate about his racism again it's just a delicate balance i think is really beautifully done between these two actors as well because again you see it all on their faces it it, the way that danny glover is trying to keep it down and then that next scene when he all right i'm gonna bust this guy and you see him everything clicks and it's this movie is fueled by motion of the characters as much as their stillness in the sets like these characters are doing so much, but it, I don't know. The, the groundwork has been laid for them in a beautiful way. But now, think about it. Could you see Gene Wilder doing that scene? Absolutely not. Like, it would feel 
comical. Like, and not to say that Gene Wilder couldn't do that, but it's like, you need the edge of this character because everyone in this movie is incredibly pure. Like, Angelica Houston, like, you get the sense that she's been with all these men, or at least these men have wanted to be with her. You have this, you know, this sad man that Chaz is, his wife has died, and taken to wearing red tracksuits because red is easily identifiable in any sort of a, a danger situation, not because of the fashion choice. It's like literally he's wearing on his sleeve his biggest fear, Margot broken. Uh, and then, you know, and and then Richie, who's literally just traveling around the world with not, nobody or anything like he is. They're all broken. And you need this. You need somebody that has. I don't know, an edge to him to kind of actually ignite everybody. It's almost like he's the flint that ignites the fires and all these characters again that make them come back to life. Whereas Gene Wilder is very much of the ilk of those children and and Angelica Houston. That's fair, you know, because I don't think of this at all as a movie about a, a close clan or even a competitive one, even though they are in little ways, like mm-hmm. the way that Margot's upset when Ben Stiller, when Chaz moves back into the house and she's like, well, if he can, why can't I? They don't seem to me to be that inter personally competitive because they're all failures at this point. Like they're really not comparing themselves to anybody. They're sort of comparing themselves to who they could have been. It feels like a, I think there's a difference between like self-contained competitiveness and like external competitiveness. They are frozen. This family Mm -hmm. is locked in amber. The house is locked in amber. The time is locked in amber. Like the cabs look like cabs from the seventies. Right. And there's this idea in my, in my mind where you see the way that they're dressed. I mean, obviously Ben Stiller is dressed a little bit more current than Margot is. Uh, but Richie is very much dressed of like a John McEnroe style. And what <laughs> you I just think got it, me thinking in 2001, would like the really current Ben Stiller tracksuit have Juicy on the ass? <laughs> no, no. Those tracksuits are still in style. I know because I wear Adidas every single day. I told Devin to get one too. Uh, the um, I'll tell you this much. What I think is happening in a very subtle way is that the movie ends. And what's the last image that you see or one of the last images It's 2001 on the gravestone. I think there's a moment where this film is trying to say to you, these characters have been trapped in who they were for a long time. And the death of this man has now brought them into 2001 because it's not timeless. There is a time. And I know it's like, well, we're going to be a little bit weird about it. But I think that in a weird way, his passing brings them to the moment. I mean, we'll never know because there's no sequel, uh, which I'm trying to pitch desperately. People will not buy it. <laughs> I guess they don't want to buy anything from somebody who just writes Wes Anderson fanfic. But uh, but I think there's something interesting about that, like that every one of these characters is a version, just a bigger version of the smaller version of themselves. Like they are, they are the, the children that we've already seen. I mean, that makes me sad for then it to be the death of 2001 because I think there was a type of New York life that did die in 2001 right. and not even just, not even just the trade center, you know, but 2001 feels like when newspapers began to die, like when free newspapers began to die, the village voice started to go down its financial downslide. Like, like there was a while, I think in the nineties when art was kind of cool and self-sustaining and you could be a creative person in New York and like make money and live and it feels like that started to die after 2001. It it feels like kind of the death of the majesty of the city as like a, the kind of charming artistic bohemian life. I say this as a person who's never lived in New York, but... Well, I was going to say, as does, someone yeah. who was there, I disagree with you in the sense that 
after 9-11, and this movie obviously isn't commenting on 9-11 because it was shot before 9-11. You know, it just happened to come out for awards, you know, and they, they dated it. So this really comes out like two months after 9-11 or is at least eligible to come out in like a couple of theaters. Um, it's interesting because I found that time to be incredibly explosive. It was like we've all lived in this world where we felt safe and protected and then this moment happened. And this is only my perspective of it. Yeah. This moment happened that rocked us to our core. Like, oh my God, we could die at any minute. We could th- we could be under attack. This, this bubble that we thought we lived in doesn't exist anymore. And that brought out, I think, such an amazing explosion of art. Like when you talk about the music scene that came out of New York, and that's like the strokes and the yeah, yeah, yes. This idea of like when people were going into, you know, Queens and Brooklyn and the, you know, the F and G line or whatever it is, like you're going out to these warehouses. There was like a rebirth of cool, or at least that's what I experienced. I was part of that with the UCB. Like it was like where we were already doing it, but there was another level to it. There was, a, I think, a level of, fuck it, we all might be dead soon, right? Like this, this might come and collapse on us. And, and Bush was in the White House and there was this energy of like, fuck this guy, or at least from my perspective. And everyone I was around was just doing cooler shit and trying different stuff and not being afraid to almost like to go heavy. Now you're right about, I wasn't involved in the new newspaper business at that point, but I felt like artistically and creatively, there was an energy that just exploded out of the city. I don't know if that translated to the rest of the country, but there is something interesting about a tragic situation that unleashes this ability to become who you are. And I think that that's what this movie does to kind of bring it back to the film, which is like, this man who has ultimately kept a bubble over this family, whether he knew it or not, like his death, you know, you see them all exit frame at the end. I love that slow motion exiting frame. It almost is like they are, they're being released from the bubble, from the, the world that they were trapped in. They all are, you know, and they're all leaving frame. I don't know. There was something about that end. I was like, I think I see something bigger here. No, you're right. That's fair. I think I was actually thinking about it in such like a narrow self-interested way you know that like because so much of my my heart has always been with like the alt weeklies and alt weeklies like really died in 2001 or they started the they like it's like they got the mortal wound that then killed everybody later because yeah i mean for anybody who's interested like the 30 second summary is that in 2001 after the trade center with the rise also of um craigslist like all money pulled out of the village voice and and like all the advertising died. Right. And so then that Village Voice merged, merged with what would be my paper, the LA Weekly, and became like a conglomerate. And then that conglomerate got sold and then all papers died and all alt-weeklies have pretty much ceased to exist around the country as any sort of like but- consistent money-making, art-promoting, young, here's what the cultures of this city uh, publication. And it's, no, it I, I, I feel that. I, I, like, I feel that way where you know, the internet was exploding like wikipedia started ipods are coming out like this is a time where we are crossing a technological threshold where you know it's the beginning of the end of record stores it's the beginning of the end of all these things like the idea that you would go to the library to do research no 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 now you have wikipedia like so i mean yes in this moment this is a moment where we are you know and i think this film is oddly now we're thinking about it like it's reflective of this this middle ground, like we are in the past, but we are almost in the future. And then this tragic event happened that I think financially caused a a lot of situations to happen, but technologically there's a lot of advancements and we all for better or worse went to this, this different realm that we can never go back to. 
you know, and I love that this movie doesn't really show cell phones or anything like that. I mean, most of the time they're in like an old school phone booth and, you know, and it, and, but yet it still feels as current as you could possibly make it feel. Cause you feel like Royal would not have a cell phone, you know, Royal needs to borrow a quarter to use a payphone, And I, and I love that about him. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Save big money at There's something in this movie that I think really straddles, you know, adult and child. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not even just in the way that they're dressed, but like I think about how Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, she walks into scenes and what we hear is like the music that I a thousand percent only associate with the Peanuts movies. And I'm going to guarantee that it's the same thing for Wes Anderson. I mean, you hear it here when she like decides to leave her husband and move into her house. The Vince Guaraldi trio, right? That's who we're talking about. Yeah. You don't love me anymore, do you? I do, kind of. I can't explain it right now. Another end here and another end here. I'll call you, okay? And then you hear it again when she's like forced to try to have ice cream with her dad and it's really uncomfortable. I'd like to order some ice cream for my daughter. What would you like, Margo? Nothing. I told you I have to go in five minutes. I'll have a butterscotch sundae, I guess. I think to use that song cue here in a movie that I think is pretty much wall-to-wall like song cues, maybe almost too much, but to use like that specific sound cue... If you're Wes Anderson, you know what that does to all of your audience that's like under 90, right? You know Mm -hmm. that everybody just immediately swoons. There's something where you can't help but curl up and coo, you know, and like love Margot and have your heart go out to her when you hear the peanut song. Like it's it's just, I mean, it's Pavlovian. It's like. Absolutely. I mean, I was listening to the soundtrack this morning and it, 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 it makes me think of the holidays. It's there's something so wonderful about the way that that sounds. I also think. It's a comment on the peanuts, right? Because what's the one thing that we know about the peanuts? How do the adults speak in peanuts, right? Like, wah, 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 right? And the kids only speak. And here is Margot in this world where she, it, everyone around her, wah, 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 like her husband, like she doesn't care, you know, and, and, and obviously her dad, who is basically, she's like a prop to him. Like there's something really interesting and, and, She's in this world where I think 
in many respects, feels like a peanut character. I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. The adults don't even say anything that make any difference. Like there's, I don't know if I want to draw that much of a comparison, but I'm, I'm going to. I just say like no, but it's funny that you lump like her husband in with the adults and not her. I mean, oh, absolutely, you, she's, she's so yeah, much she older. She marries a guy who's basically her dad's age. Oh, absolutely. And and by the way, I remember not liking this movie, or not liking Bill Murray in this movie because I want more Bill Murray. But I love the character that he plays in this. Like it's a very understated Bill Murray. It's like it's the um, cuckold. Uh, mm-hmm. Bill Murray, if you will, like, and and there's something so sweet when he's like, "Do you mind if I cook you dinner?" And she's like, "No." And he's like, "Okay," you know. And it's like, there's something so sweet about it. I mean, in a, in a weird way, you see him as this like father figure that she didn't have, which obviously that's why I think she's mm-hmm. marrying him. But and the father all... figure she kind of didn't want. Yeah, <laughs> also, of like maybe I'll get a father figure. No, I don't want one. I'm done. I don't need it. Now let me just throw this other thought at you and say. I also think that Wes Anderson wrote him as a father figure, and I think Dudley is Wes Anderson. You think Dudley is Wes Anderson? I think if you look at Dudley and I think if you look at Wes Anderson, they they look a little bit alike. I don't think that they are the same, but I feel like Wes Anderson is very particular and very, you know, interested. Like, like he's got he works on his own clock. And I feel like in a way that's him saying, this is me. Like, if you look at them together, like I looked at that doc on IFC, it's like they look identical. They have similar faces and features. And not to say that Wes Anderson isn't in touch with himself, but I feel like he's not the guy who is, he's not Gene Hackman. He's the guy who's building dioramas, you know, and looking at little things and, and having different relationships with spatial things and people and, um, and, you know, putting the fireman's hat on, on Bill Murray's head and looking at him like, oh, look at you. Like, you know, they like... There's a dent in the car. Look at the dent in the car. That's so Wes Anderson to me. It's like, look at these little things, these imperfections that every, like, he's looking at that, not looking at the big picture. And I think that that is a, I don't know. I just thought there was something interesting about that character, the way he looked, his relationship with Bill Murray. And I think that Bill Murray is that to Wes Anderson, this father figure, because Gene Hackman is a shit, a literal shit. And, you know, the the stories are, and I don't know if I'm talking out of school, but I'm just going to say it because who cares at this point. But, you know, like Bill Murray had to come to set when he was not working to keep Gene Hackman in check. Like the famous story was like when they were shooting in Central Park, like Bill Murray came in a cowboy hat and stood on top of where they were shooting and was watching Gene Hackman, like hawking him, being like, you step out of line, I'm the sheriff. You step out of line, I'm going to knock you down. And like Bill Murray's job was the protector of Wes Anderson. I think they say that Angelica Houston did the same, but like Gene Hackman ate him alive. And, um, yeah, and he Bill told Murray, Wes Anderson to pull up his pants and act like a man. And then he called him the C word, by the way. And that's Royal Tenenbaum. Like that's a great Royal Tenenbaum. Like, and to me, like not to say like, I approve of that, but that is, that's the, that is this. He is that artistic kid who's being shit on by Gene Hackman. That energy I think is, I don't know. It, it probably brought a lot to the scenes and, and everything. I mean, you watch this behind the scenes EBK. Gene Hackman does not look happy. I mean, you, uh, I mean, he he stares down the that documentary. How dare you put me in this movie that's going to get me a golden globe. Oh, dude, when you look at Gene Hackman, like stare down the barrel of the documentary crew's lens, he doesn't say a word. And you, I, I was like, ah, uh, sorry. Like, I, I wanted to apologize. I felt uncomfortable being there. Like, and, um. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. And, and, you know, I think this happens a lot. Like a lot of, I mean, I heard 
I'll just share my one story about a very famous actor and a first-time big movie director. And there is this pissing contest. Like, like they say, like, when you go to jail, hit the, you know, the biggest person, these actors just will rip a little director out, you know, like, apart, if just to kind of prove their dominance. And, you know, and this actor I knew, was like, day one gave a note to the big actor, and the big actor's like, fire me then. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, <laughs> you don't like how I'm doing it? Then fire me. Because you hired me to do a job, and that's how I'm doing it, and that's it. Like, and there's, not to say that every actor is like this, there's not, but that idea that, like, the, these directors are these artistic-minded people who are then put into a situation where they have to answer and and improve themselves all the time. And I think that, in many ways, maybe he learned that a little bit on Rushmore or, or whatever, but this idea, like, these people were tamped down. They were artistic, but they were tamped down by the, the world that was uh, keeping them down. And I think that that's something that, Wes Anderson probably could speak to a little bit. I mean, it's, wow. I wonder what it would have been like if Gene Hackman could have opened up and talked about it. I mean, like Gene Hackman himself, his dad, the story I heard is that when he was a kid, um, his dad left and didn't come back. And that Gene has this memory of his dad just waving goodbye to him from the back of a car and pulling away and never seeing him again and basically pulling a Royal Tenenbaum. And I can imagine a different actor like really tapping into that. Um, and maybe he did under the surface, but But I think he did because I, I know I think he did because I think there's this, oh man, I, this movie gets me emotionally too. Like the, the moment when I'm going to cry thinking about it, like, but when Ben Stiller says like, and I don't even, I probably won't even have the right quote, but like at the end of the movie, it was like, I've had a bad year. Like, Mm -hmm. oh God, it just gets me because it's sort of like he couldn't even say that to his dad, right? They couldn't even admit that. And it just shows how far away they are. And there is uh, something really interesting about that Gene Hackman character where you get that he cares, but he does everything to not show you that and everything to kind of push him away. Yeah, I, yeah. I pulled that moment with yeah. um, with Gene Hackman and Ben Stiller. What's his name? Sparkplug. Thank you. You're welcome. I've had a rough year, Dad. I know you have, Chazzy. I love also how in the staging of that, it like it comes at the end of that huge pan where you're checking in on everybody in the family yeah. besides Margot to see how they're doing with the accident. And that Gene Hackman in this one take has to get from the top of the fire truck to like the bottom to walk yeah. over to Ben with the... And, you know, him naming the dog Sparkplug kind of adds to your idea of him as like this flint who's starting the the spark that like burns down all of his dead brush that's keeping this family all wired. But I also, I pulled that one and I pulled this other um, scene between like Ben Stiller and Gene Hackman, the one where he's asking him why he shot him in the, in the hand with mm. a BB gun when he was a kid. Why'd you shoot me? It was the object of the game, wasn't it? No. We were on the same team. Were we? Well, you sued me twice. Got me disbarred. I don't hold it against you, do I? And how is it possible for Mr. Tannenbaum to withdraw these funds without your written authorization? Objection, Your Honor. Damn it. Why don't you leave the objections to me, Royal? Because I started the corporation when I was a minor, so my father was the primary signatory on most of my accounts. He also stole bonds out of my safety deposit box when I was 14. You think you could start forgiving me? 
Why should I? Because you're hurting me. Interesting note, uh, that hand with the BB in it, that's real. That uh, knuckle belongs to Andrew Wilson, uh, Owen and Luke's brother. Uh, when they were children, Owen fired a BB gun at Andrew's hand, and the BB has been there ever since. <laughs> that is a magical special effect. You're like, if that happened to my brother, I guess, or my friend's brother, I have to like work it in somehow. But, <laughs> but honestly, to me, I'm just going to say something. Ben Stiller is my favorite part of this movie. He's great. I love He's that great. character. I love his dynamic with his dad. I love his story. Like, I think he has the most interesting story out of anybody in here. You know, losing his wife, his dad never remembering her name. It reminded me a bit of Tokyo Story. That's, Actually, okay, that, a lot of this reminded way, me a bit of Tokyo oof. Story. Like, the the way people stare at the camera to kind of, like, break through, make you acknowledge them, like, have this moment of intimacy. When Luke Wilson does it, he takes off his sunglasses and he's like, I am here looking at you. But but the idea of, like, the kids in this family having different memories of their father to based on their birth order, that he remembers all of the really bad times. And Luke Wilson got more of the good times with him being, like, the younger and the favorite. But well, also Luke Wilson's the jock. Mm-hmm. Right. Ben Stiller's the nerd. Like, you know, and even though he was doing accounting like there, there is the, and, and, you know, and, and Margo's adopted. Right. Like the he I think that Luke Wilson's character is the boy that he always wanted and that he didn't ever have the daughter. And then, you know, in his mind and he had the son who was a nerd. Yeah, that's fair. Although he seems to care about money more than sports himself. But money but, that he has, he doesn't have any mm-hmm. interest in like making it like mm-hmm. like I mean, it's funny because whenever he talks about a woman, it's all about how she looks like when he does talk about his dead wife and when he doesn't remember her name, like you said, that tragic. But when yeah. he like he goes, we talking to the kids, their mother and going, she was very attractive, very attractive woman. Like, yeah. it's like, wow, like it's like that was it. Like, that's what he's saying is that she was hot. Like and he does it like three times in the movie where he just comments on the attractive level of the woman. It's I mean, it's beautiful writing. It's great. It's so it's so rich. Yeah, and he thinks he's giving he thinks he's giving a sincere compliment. But like I just think Ben Stiller I just want to seize my moment to talk about how I think yeah. Ben Stiller is one of our great underappreciated talents. Um I mean this very sincerely. I don't think anybody does that kind of tragic, pathetic, hot-blooded like mania the way that he does, where I just I like my heart goes out to Ben Stiller every single time he does these kind of films. And I think he is more of the soul of this movie than anybody else. Like, I think he feels the outrages on a deeper level. You know, I, I don't think he goes to the extremes of the other characters, or at least like not to Luke Wilson. But I think he believes more in like the moral center, even though he seems like the kind of like righteous one, the kind of commanding, the like, well, here's my stopwatch. We have to leave the house in this this moment. He just breaks my heart from seed to seed. It, it, this is where I will say that like, you know, Ben Stiller is so good in all of these movies that people make fun of. I mean, starting with like The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And I just hope that someday we are able to appreciate the majesty that is Ben Stiller. If people haven't seen Ben Stiller in Brad's Status, like a really little film by Mike White that came out, it is to, like an unsung, amazing performance. Just everything Ben Stiller kills me. Because to be honest, like what I, okay, if I do have a structural criticism of this movie, it's that the stories that the two girls are involved in, that Angelica Houston is involved in and Gwyneth Paltrow, are just them being the fulcrum of love triangles where the other guys are fighting it out, to be honest. You know, like, Angelica Houston is, is trapped between Danny and Jean, and then, like, Margot is trapped between um, Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson and her husband. And 
that like the major turning point of the action is just that all the guys are outraged that Margot had this sexual life before them. It I find it so upsetting. You know, I really when you hear you know the Elliot Smith song "Come On" during the suicide scene with Luke Wilson, like you can't help but be hurt. That scene really hits you. And I think it's beautifully played, beautifully done. And at the end of it, it still just makes me angry. It makes me incredibly angry because she's just living her life. Like she's just been, she's always wanted to travel and get everywhere. Those zebras mean she wants to like go to see lives outside of this city. And that they don't really, I think, respect what she wants, except for how it affects them. And that they don't get to date her makes me annoyed. Well, this movie is about petty people. I want to talk about a couple of things you just said. First of all, I second everything you say about Ben Stiller. I would argue, if I'm going to be very critical, I'm a huge Ben Stiller fan. Giant. Uh, one of the great thrills I've ever had in my life is being able to actually like work with him and kind of be even around in his orbit a little bit. I grew up and the Ben Stiller show was a huge influence on me as far as like comedically what he did. I just... I love Cable Guy. I love um, what she directed. I love Ben Stiller in the comedy space. I think that Ben Stiller recently has just been phenomenal. And every every collaboration he does with Noah Baumbach is, to me, uh, perfection. And I agree, like Mike White, like he's done really interesting things. He still will have fun. Like he shows up in Hubie Halloween and can still bring that kind of heat and be silly. Um but there are moments in this film where I feel like he is not fully comfortable doing that 100% of the time. Like the scene where there is a petulance to him, and I think it's really well done, but sometimes just a little pushed. I was looking like, oh, like I love the way that he stands in the staircase when like when Royal's yelling at him and it looks like he's a kid, like he's got the posture of a kid. Same mm-hmm. way like when he uh when he's like reading the magazine and Royal's telling him that he's dying, he's like, oh, bored, oh, I'm bored. You know, that to me doesn't feel as organic as the character we first meet, you know, running the kids out of the house and like we're all dead and in these more softer moments. And I feel like there's, he is finessed in the 20 years, that balance of being able to hit the comedy beats, but also, I don't know, it just, that stood out to me, those two little scenes. And now I'm coming at it from, I agree with you. I think he's great, all that sort of stuff. But I'm also going to throw one thing at you. I think the reason why, you feel this way about Ben Stiller in this movie is going back to a little term that we used a couple weeks ago, emotional squibs, right? By giving him these two kids, you automatically, he becomes elevated. He's the only one that is grounded. Like you, the connection to those kids, I think actually flush him out. Whereas, you know, depression is so hard to capture on camera and, and, and you know, and Margo is depressed and, uh, and Richie is depressed. And so is Chad. They're all, they're all depressed. But there's something more sympathetic to him because he has these children and he had this loss. So it almost feels justified. Whereas the other two feel like, oh, well, they're just, 
rich kids who can't quite figure it out. Like there is, I don't know, there's a weight to him. I think it's actually definitely dumb, but I, I think that the reason why you feel that way is because he's got these emotional squibs attached to him. He's got three, two kids and one dead wife. That's fair. It's probably the dead wife that would, I'm not, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty resistant to kids. If kids right. are a virus, I'm kind of like, uh, okay. But you know, I just rewatched The Notebook and everything with the older people makes me die. Like, I just want to cry every time I see a sad older person, every time I see like oh. loss, like, like that kills me. Um, you also mentioned Elliot Smith. And I want to just take a moment to talk about what this movie did Yes, there's a lot of sound cues here. But for me, as someone who didn't get into music, like I'm like I'm a late bloomer to like a widened worldview, right? Like I didn't grow up listening to the Ramones. So maybe the first time I'm hearing the Ramones is in Royal Tenenbaums. Like and this movie introduces me to the Ramones, right? Um you mean you it's know, like Wes Anderson made you a mixtape? Truly, like, I mean, yeah. Oh, I wrote this with you for you with Sharpie. Heart, but by heart. the way, like the Kinks, like learning about the Kinks, like the Kinks, mm-hmm. like these are like all you know, all these uh, these songs that are on Rushmore and here, like they're and not that it's it is a part of the movie, but what he's also doing is creating like I think a you know helping people like expand expand and and kind of see a bigger worldview. I, I love directors who are so into that. Like we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like those soundtracks are great too. Like, who are these people? I've never heard it. And I love this song. It's like, you know, and, and Elliot Smith obviously um, had great prominence um, in, you know, in, um, in the world with Goodwill Hunting, right? Like that was kind of his like foray onto the scene, into the major scene. Um, and, you know, so I feel like when that song comes here, it's like, wow, it's, I don't know. I just, I don't, th- I would have more issues with it if it were needle drops, you know? It's not needle drops. It They are very much sound cues that I think are so specific. They've become needle drops because of this movie. Like, this is a, one of those rare films where the soundtrack is like, it went multi-platinum, just like Days and Confused, you know? And like, they probably released two soundtracks because it's like, well, gotta have more money out of this. But even like Mark Mothersburg, like that, the the score is great. Like it, the, everything is like, it just brings you in. So I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of sound cues, but uh, when they're unique and organic, I, I don't mind them. Well, I think, I think, I think my issue is just that the sound cues shoulder a little bit more of the emotion than maybe they should. That I think if you like, hundred percent agreed. I mean, out, I, I think, yeah. I, I think there would, I think the movie would not be quite as strong without them. I think that they're almost a crutch. Look, look, when you talk about the Vince Guaraldi trio and the Elliott Smith song, one billion percent. I can't argue yeah. with that at all. And, and, no. and, and, and that's okay, you're, you're, I guess. You're right. You're, like, I know then, then, then the argument would be like, well, that's the job of a director. You pick the right. songs that get the emotions. But it, he does that, like, I think every five minutes. And so after all, I'm like, all right, you can't have all heavy lifting. Like, at some point, <laughs> lift a little bit yourself. Yeah, no, I mean, and there's a lot of interesting things in this film, too, that also are reminiscent to his other films. Um, And I think the one thing that I really want to talk about uh, that I feel like we haven't really tapped into is this is the last collaboration of Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson, right? They Mm -hmm. don't they don't work together again as screenwriters. Um, And that's because. 
I think for a myriad of reasons, Wes Anderson continues to work with other people, you know, and, and writing his scripts. But the story that I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they were writing this together. And this is when Owen Wilson is exploding from the Bottle Rocket success and finding all this big Hollywood success and becomes a drug addict, becomes obsessed with himself. And he writes Owen Wilson, who he is becoming in a way. Like this is like, this is a moment, a stamp. And it's, and it's, it's an intervention in a way. And that, that watching it now, and obviously Owen Wilson has gone through some very traumatic things. Uh, you know, the idea though, that, that this movie is also telling that story as much as we were talking before about is Bill Murray, the father figure of, oh, you know, of Wes Anderson even, you know, and I think that this is also the story of, you know, uh, Wes Anderson as Richie and Owen Wilson as Eli. Like this, these are two friends who have been pulled apart. Now in the movie, it's about a woman, but in real life, it's because this person has just kind of, you know, wearing the cowboy outfits, becoming basically an asshole, like a, like an egotist and talking out of his ass. And like, you see all the fun that they had or all the connection they had just to diminish and dwindle. And, and, you know, like, uh, there's something really, I don't know. I think there's something really poetic and actually like, I can't believe that Owen Wilson shot that. Like I know that Steve Martin wrote Bowfinger and wrote the part of Heather Graham as, uh, Anne Heche to kind of parallel that, but he didn't have Anne Heche play Anne Heche. I mean, Wes Anderson is having Owen Wilson play Owen Wilson and, and literally say like, I need help. I need to go get an intervention, which he didn't do. Well, but he doesn't I, do it. Yeah. And he tries he, not to do it here either as much but as he, he does can. at the end. I mean, at the end, he I mean, at the end, he, but yeah, he tries yeah. not to. I mean, yeah. I think he's doing that with both Wilsons, to be honest. Mm. You know, he's he's having both of them deal with how this sudden fame for all three of them to come up during Bottle Rocket together as this unit, right? And then for them too, for those two, for the for the Wilson brothers to then explode as actors and get more paparazzi, get the attention, get the cameras. Well, when you look at pictures of Wes Anderson from this day, he's still a total goober. Like he's he doesn't look as cool and suave as he does now. You right. know, he's a big ass dork. And so his trifecta of friends, now he's like perhaps the most artistically successful of the three at the point, but he's the least recognizable, the least famous. And so, you know, in that brilliant costuming detail to to have us all know that Eli grew up across the street from them in New York, but have this affectation of like the cowboy clothes yeah. is hilarious and his way of calling him a phony throughout the whole thing. But with Luke Wilson, you see that that character constantly is being chased by photographers and feels uncomfortable with it. Like over and over again, people stop and they're like, you know, bomber, 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 take a picture. And I feel like that's also him kind of examining what being physically famous has done to his other friend as well, which is is still a fame he doesn't have at this point. I don't think he becomes more recognizable until he grows his hair out. Mm, You know, it's, it it is interesting because it is a, as much as this is a story about family. This is a story about how success ruins people or how a preconceived notion, you know, it's like they like as if success takes away your problems, right? And I think that what's so interesting is like everyone has a book, right? And so you would think, oh well, if you all wrote a book, you all must be happy. You're all being successful. You're you know, if everyone has a movie or everyone has a career, but there are these internal struggles that everyone is dealing with and no one wants to go there. No one wants to analyze why, you know, why Bomber had this breakdown. How funny is it, by the way, that he gets beaten by a guy named Gandhi? 
I mean, I love it. It's it's so great. And by the way, the announcers in that, that's Andrew Wilson and uh, Wes Anderson doing the uh, the play-by-play there, uh, well, if you recognize those voices. Then you've got me thinking, I'd actually never thought about this before, but what if the prodigies, you know, that the three prodigies that can't maintain their success, what if that is Wes talking about him and the brothers? Like to be, you know, in your early mid twenties, having like a breakout film like Bottle Rocket, like what will that early success do to you if you're if you feel like filmmaking prodigies? And I wonder if, you know, that costume of of Owen, you know, I am the Texan. Like mm-hmm. I wonder if they had all felt like that when they came to Hollywood. They are Texas boys, you know, and you kind right. of wear being like the kids from yeah. You wear being the kids from Texas like a costume, maybe for a while. I wonder like if there is more self-reflection in this movie than I considered in that direction. I, I think so. I mean, what's so interesting is if you ask anyone on the street, is Wes Anderson a New Yorker? I would guarantee you a majority of people would say, absolutely. Like this feels like a, a movie made by a New Yorker who lived in this weird, like the same way that Lena Dunham has this feel of like, this is what New York is. He is a Texan. This is his first movie he makes outside of Texas. But um, it's interesting because uh, I think that a lot of what Wes Anderson does is to pull away from Texas. Like you, like you don't, I don't think of him at all from Texas. And then when you look at it, you're like, Oh yeah, right. But I think of Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson as being from mm-hmm. Texas. Like there's a lot, there's a lot to be said there. I mean, it's a yeah, lot like the idea of like, 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 grand, like tradition of like, like kids like Andy Warhol moving to New York and being like, I am more New York than the rest of you. Now that I am here, like I will and, embody this city. And, and the fact that like that a bomber wears the same fucking clothes. Like he is like, like they all are in a re- like, it's like the Simpsons, right? They're like, they, they have age, but their clothes have not like, they have not like, you know, they are except for, you know, um, you know, except for, uh, Chaz, you know, um, but they are all in their same, you know, little outfits, um, which is interesting. They're just like, they're not growing. Maybe he's like, you're not growing. You're not trying to do new things. You're not exploring it. You know, I think there's a lot of frustration probably here with these characters and maybe, you know, getting, Luke Wilson at this point in his career to play something so dark when he was a kind of this like Matthew McConaughey kind of leading man at that point, you know, or or on that track and Owen Wilson maybe, you know, being more of a goofball. Like he plays them in these really dark, heavy roles. Like they're 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 a lot different than they had been in their other films. It's true. And I was thinking also watching this, so many of the characters in here are people who they're living is studying other people anyways. Mm-hmm. You know, like thinking about reflection, you know, thinking about how Angelica Houston is an anthropologist, you know, studying human life and culture and how it existed. And, you know, Danny Glover is interested into, in all of that through her. Novelists are people who are interested in human behavior, great studiers of like how people talk and interact. Same thing with playwrights. And, and even, you know, Bill Murray. Well, Bill Murray, exactly, who's based on like a person who studied like the famous um, Oliver Sacks. He is like a great study of mankind they have the exact same beard actually do you want to hear oliver sacks talk because this oh is how yeah he i remember once seeing one <laughs> one patient he sneezed and this suddenly broke up the parkinsonism and the catatonia and he moved and talked for about 30 seconds and then he froze up again and but in that 30 seconds you know a whole personality and something of a human life had been revealed it's really interesting. Oliver Sacks, oh, he has so many awesome things if people want to read any of them. I think he's the guy who wrote The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think this movie is like a diorama. You know, the more you look into it, the more that you see, the more the time has passed, the more 
you can see what he was trying to say. It may not have been apparent in the moment. And I think, you know, before we wrap things up, we got to talk about Charlie Rose and how right on he was about Charlie Rose. I mean, you know, Charlie Rose, obviously, if you you know anything about him, uh, they're parodying him in this sequence of the film. But they also are showing you him like this being this like lecherous man. Like, like it, that is one of my favorite scenes again, where he's just like greedily grabbing at Gwyneth Paltrow's breasts. It's like it's such a weird like you're just catching them do this moment. And it's like, I don't know, it's just in, in, interesting. Like, what did he know? Like, did he know that? Or was that what was being spoken about? Like, there is something, all these like little, it's almost like, um, you know, I'll take it back even from, from a diorama. It's a diorama, but it's also, because my kids have this, like flip books, like where you open up a little panel and inside the little panel is another little picture and you can close it. Near. Like, like I when I saw that, I was like, oh man, he called Charlie Rose, what, 15, 16 <laughs> years ago? I mean, amazing. I guess what I'm saying is like all those little details make it feel to me like the the most rich of his films. And that's somebody like I loved Rushmore. And for a while, I'd be like, oh, I don't want to hear any other any other discussion. Like, I just think Rushmore is the best one. And then I love Grand Budapest Hotel. But now when I watch this again, I'm like, I think this might be the most well-rounded, which is what I said in the beginning. I, I can't imagine that people don't. Well, I mean, what, what, what do people think about it? I don't know. Like, I mean, because I don't know how people think of it because I just know how I viewed it. Well, when this movie came out, there were people who passionately loved it. Very many critics did passionately love it. And several major important critics also were like, okay, come on. And they felt a little bit more how I did it towards him at the time. Like, what? there's no life here. There's no life here. Um, So the review that I picked is somebody who I love very deeply, who actually used to be the um, chief film critic for The Village Voice. Here is Stephanie Zaharik, then of Salon, now of Time Magazine. And this is what Mm -hmm. she wrote about Royal Tenenbaums when it came out. The Royal Tenenbaums marks Wes Anderson as a director whose heart is in the right place. The problem is that everything else is out of whack. There's an awkward self-consciousness to the way he strings scenes together, like giant wooden beads that some critics and fans have hailed as visionary. But to the rest of us, those scenes don't connect in any meaningful rhythm. And that's only the beginning. Anderson's other hallmarks here are brilliant gags that deflate in the execution, potentially interesting characters that end up so flat they feel as though they've been cut out of paper, a plot that's all set up and no story. Even though I want to trust that Anderson's impulses are pure, the movie is so calculating that I could only imagine Anderson sitting in some darkened room somewhere, toting up the laughs and tears on a child's chalkboard. Anderson's movies have the innocence of a crayon drawing, which is part of what some moviegoers like about him. They exist in a world where nothing so messy as sex intrudes, except at the most basic childlike crush level. If there are essential nooks and crannies of the human experience that Anderson finds yucky and off-putting, his alleged brilliance is going to hit the ceiling pretty soon. Like those rarefied, assertively cute mice, he's showing his spots. It's up to us whether to buy them or not. Well, you know, look, that is her opinion, and it's a fine <laughs> yes, opinion to have. Uh, but, you know, it to me, you know, we see all the levels that he's working on, but I... I think there is this idea, and maybe I've even fallen victim to it, which is like you look at all the pomp and circumstance around his films, all the little machinations, all the Rube Goldberg-like things, and it distracts you from what he's actually doing. And then you think less of it because of it. It's like, okay, well, because now when we're in, you know, in this movie, we're going to see somebody open up their knapsack and we're going to see all the things laid out on a piece of paper. Like there's, you know, there's a preciousness to it that kind of, 
obscures what he's going for. So maybe as a director, that is his Achilles heel and what people won't ever get past because they're sort of caught in the cute and not really um, seeing uh, what he's trying to do. But I don't think he can separate himself from that. No, and I think what she was also trying to call out in that review is she's almost accusing him of being as um, in in arrested development as the characters. You know, she's saying like, Mm -hmm. if he's uncomfortable talking about grown up, really grown up emotions, besides like, I like my sister, you know, we want to hang out in a tent together and play tuba or whatever. Then like, Mm. is he going to grow as a filmmaker? You know, will he, what else is he going to mine if he's like reached his level of like what he finds comfortable discussing? Which honestly, when you look at stuff like Darjeeling Limited that came after this, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. Well, I mean, well, first it was, you know, Life Aquatic, right? Mm -hmm. And Life Aquatic, I had issues with Life Aquatic because that's a movie to me, again, it's not a bad movie, but it is kind of like a redo of this in a way. It's like a dysfunctional family-ish, you know, this person, a, a patriarch who, you know, is like kind of, crushed everybody like there's a lot there's a lot going on there there's a lot of great stuff going on there too but i do think that the the first three opened a door that the next three didn't necessarily i think capitalize on like the next three are not my three favorites like if you said like wes anderson stopped these three i'd be like amazing but then i think he started to find deeper stuff you know and i think one of the problems with becoming successful so young or having this level of being able to make what you want and no one questioning it is like, you don't have to, you don't grow in your experiences as well. You know, sometimes like there's only limited things you can draw from, I guess. I mean, right. Cause that's one of the perils. If you become a prodigy filmmaker, you know, like the young people of the nineties who did get famous really fast for their first films that mind their personal lives really well. You know, I think of Wes Anderson and I think of Kevin Smith, like they both hit a point, I think around the third, fourth, films of their career where they didn't have that much to talk about suddenly they were like i made movies about my life and then i ran out of life and now Mm. what do i do where do i go and i I, it's a struggle you know and i think that people exploded onto the scene and then fizzled out i mean you could go back to like boondock saints i don't even know if boondock saints is like a great movie but you know I think everyone was looking for the next big thing. And, you know, there's only a handful that have been able to consistently produce interesting work that feels like it's carving new territory. And I think the reason why they've done that is because they've worked under their own worldview. Like Quentin Tarantino obviously keeps it nice and tight, like works with the same people in the same world, you know, uh, and does his own thing, right? Like he's like, but he's not changing it up that much. And whether or not like those, like he, his, his backstory is pop culture. So he's going into there and telling cool stories and, and embracing that. Uh, he's trying different things. I think that uh, you look at Steven Soderbergh, he's like, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to do these Ocean Eleven's movies and get all this money, but I'm going to also make handheld movies and I'm going to go retire a few times and I'm going to shoot everything and be done by lunch. Like he's making, whether or not you like them at all, but they, they feel incredibly different. You know, um, there are these just directors who I think either, you know, they, I don't know. I, 
I have to like, I, now I want to like look at all the big directors of the early 2000s. You know, there's this like push to be like, you're the next big thing. And then they give them a big, a big movie. And then it kind of falls away. Like I remember that one guy, like Ari Spindel, like he had this movie, like if Lucy fell and he had an FX show and he had another, like he had like all these things like you almost like gave too much, too quickly to everybody. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like, we love that painting. Now open a museum of your paintings. And it's like, okay. And it's a, it's a lot. I think it's a lot to, to figure out how to be a director that can continually tell stories that are very different. And uh, you have to kind of, kind of push yourself in different directions. And I think Wes Anderson definitely, when you look at that lineup of films, it's, they're, they're interesting. I think the biggest thing that he did, which is bizarre, is going into like this dog aisle, fantastic Mr. Fox kind of world too, where it almost seems like he got more controlling. Like now I want to, now the fun is just me literally like controlling every element of every scene, every detail. And I don't know if that was good or bad. I almost feel like I would like, you know, I think maybe he got burned by Life Aquatic or the reaction to that. So then he didn't make these like bigger, I mean, they're always ensembles, but I don't know. I don't, I can't quite, I don't have a good enough argument to make it, but I'm like, I'm trying to figure out something where this like early 2000s created a glut of the next big things. I think he either had to grow or die. Like he had to change it up or he was going to become a parody of himself. And I think he had to put the family films aside, you know, which mm. he, which he did, you know, he, I think he's made a shift to trying to tell stories about different things. Right. Like he, I appreciate that he did so much research, for example, to, in Japanese culture to make Isle of Dogs, you know, like love casting Dogs. voice Isle actors who could, great. yeah. Yeah. It's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Like I think that he had to take on new experiences other than like, I'm a disgruntled kid who wish I'd grown up a little differently. That was yeah. all. And I think that's what Stephanie was saying. Like, all right, mister, like mature. Yeah, you're right. I guess you're right. Like, and you know, it's, and I think it's a hard thing to find out what works and what connects. And, you know, I think the tail of the tape is what connects after a decade. And, you know, we're mm-hmm. looking at this movie. This movie is now 20 years old, 20 years old. And it's like, wow, you can see that this movie still holds up. Absolutely. And, um, and you can now see where his career went too. It's so it's, um, you know, and I think he is still making interesting things, but I think he, there was a moment of just trying to figure out what that thing was and fully connecting. Like there are movies that I think I liked and maybe other people feel this way too. Like I liked two thirds of it or I liked one third of it. Like, and it didn't fully connect again until like for me, Isle of Dogs, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, the French Dispatch, and uh, and of course, uh, you know, the Grand Budapest. Like those are the ones that are like, okay, I'm back, mm-hmm. I'm in, I'm fully in again. Agreed, agreed, my friend. I want to do Grand Budapest on the show sometime because we should definitely do that. Because like, honestly, like I'm not ready to give Royal Tenenbaums to the to the aliens. Okay, I, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like it should be this one. I feel okay. like this is my second choice. Mm-hmm. It's my second choice, but if Grand Budapest exists, this isn't going there. This isn't going up. Um, I need to rewatch this, and then I need to put it in the context of Rushmore too. You know, um, that's true. Be- I should watch you know, Rushmore again too, because I think I mean, and I love Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. I don't think it belongs on the list, but the um, I also think that what this movie does is. <sighs> I'm going to go out on a limb. I've been saying some crazy shit in this episode, but I'll say this. It, it amberizes, that's not even a word, but it amberizes 
certain performers, like I think that some of these performances are the people's best performances. And there's something about that and this movie that makes it more special to me. Like, again, Gene Hackman is fantastic. I think Gwyneth Paltrow is amazing and playing something that I haven't really seen her do really since. Luke Wilson, great. I think the way that Owen Wilson plays this is great. Like, um, Angelica Houston, always amazing and great. But, you know, it's like there's something about this cast and this poster. Like, Ray Fiennes, I love Ray Fiennes. And he really is, you know, in many respects, the face of Grand Budapest. But um, there is... He... He did something special with this movie. Like, and I love Ben Stiller in this movie. Like, the, there is something about what he gave to the world. So when I say the aliens, like, these are some of my favorite actors giving some of the best performances that they have done. Or they never achieved this level of performance again. Or this is maybe the best version of this type of performance. And I also feel like, because it was like one of the first, you know, I think it improves on Rushmore in a certain way. Uh, it it also is like the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson film like it's sort of like him at the height of being able to do it all perfectly like I think that Pulp Fiction uh, is very much you know Quentin Tarantino like just like, like everything that you love is all kind of embedded in there and I think this is the movie this is the this is like the Rosetta Stone of Wes Anderson in my opinion there is no Grand Budapest without this and that's why I'm out. No, uh, that's why I, <laughs> I uh, why, why I would why I would argue for it. But I want to watch both and kind of look at them both. And now this brings us to our next film, Amy, which is another fucked up family. Yes, once again, we have an opening to do an AFI film from the 1997 list that was kicked off. Ooh, so fun. that's what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to be looking at the ditched film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, to see if it deserves to be put back on the list. All right, let's take a listen to the trailer. Starring Academy Award winner Spencer Tracy, Academy Award winner Sidney Poitier, Academy Award winner Katherine Hepburn. Introducing Katherine Houghton. Three Academy Award winners and a bright young newcomer combine their talents in a love story of today. I haven't even told you his name. <laughs> Mom, it, it's John Wade Prentice. Isn't that a lovely name? John Wayne. Joanna Prentice, I'll be. What the hell is going on here? I love your daughter. There is nothing I wouldn't do to try to keep her as happy as she was the day I met her. But it seems to me, without your approval, we will make no sense at all. That is why I'm asking for the clearest possible statement of what your attitude is going to be. I appreciate that, Doctor. It's uh, almost in the form of an ultimatum. Not quite, Mr. Drayton. All you have to say is goodbye. Oh, that's great. And guess who's coming to dinner is, you know, everywhere you can stream films. It's not that hard to find. Uh, I'm excited to see this because it's another film that I've never seen but heard much about. I uh, put up there with the, the Mike Nichols movie, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I don't know why I associate them together, but I just picture it as like an uncomfortable night in a house. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see this. And, uh, and again, see some more Sidney Poitier because we've not seen much of him, uh, only once. All right. So that will be next week. Um, enjoy your time with your fucked up families, everybody.
If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80 volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money. 